It's really my honor to introduce Connie Benson. Um, uh, Dr. Benson is a professor of medicine and global public health and the vice chair for education and ID training at the Division of Infectious Diseases and Global Health at UCSD. Um, she has a number of roles there, including the director of the UCSD Antiviral Research Unit. Um, she has a long history of work in the ACTG, in TB, HIV co-infection. Um, she's a consummate educator and a researcher, and uh, really my pleasure to introduce her today to um, start the first talk on investigational antiretroviral therapies. Thank you, Connie. Thank you for that kind in, uh, introduction. And I'm going to share my screen. As you heard this morning, I'll be talking about investigational antiretroviral drugs and some purported strategies for their use. Um, these are my financial relationships. These are the learning objectives for today's discussion. You can look at those in your syllabus at your leisure. And I'm just going to start off the topic by highlighting what we currently have available to us as first-line ART. And both the DHHS and the IAS USA guidelines have recommended regimens for first-line ART. And as you can see, virtually all of the recommended regimens start with an integrase strand transfer inhibitor coupled with nucleoside analogs. There are minor adjustments for individual regimens depending on the underlying uh, issues for individual patients, but very similar in each of these categories. The other point I'd like to highlight about this is that first-line agents in all of the categories, regardless of whether it's an INSTI, NNRTI, or boosted PI regimens, are now available in single tablet regimens for almost everyone. And each of these is extremely well tolerated. So you might ask, why do we actually need new antiretroviral drugs? And I think that will become obvious as I go through some of the studies for these new drugs in development, but there still remains a cadre of our patient population that experiences difficulty with some medications and certainly drug resistance. So the four classes of compounds that are in development that I'm going to talk about today include islatravir, lenacapavir, a GSK maturation inhibitor, and the promise of broadly neutralizing monoclonal antibodies. The first drug I'll touch on is a drug being developed by Merck. This is a nucleoside reverse transcriptase translocation inhibitor. And this cartoon just shows you where in the process of viral RNA replication, this particular compound inhibits and it results in chain termination. Islatravir is active at sub-nanomolar concentrations. It has approximately tenfold greater potency compared with our current antiretroviral drugs. And a particular feature is its long plasma half-life and the long, even longer half-life of the active triphosphate intracellular component of the drug, which is the active compound. It's currently under evaluation for both prevention and treatment and in a pill and injectable formulation. The major study that's been ongoing for the last year or year and a half has been the Islatravir P001 study. This is a phase 2b study design, and I'll walk you through this because it's a bit complicated. 
treatment naive individuals who had detectable HIV RNA and a CD4 count of greater than 200 were randomized in part one of the study to one of three different doses of Islatravir and a control arm of Draverine, 3TC, and Tenofovir. The companion drugs for Islatravir also included Draverine and 3TC. Patients were continued on these regimens for the first 24 weeks of part one, and those individuals who had suppressed RNA at week 20 then went on to part two of the study, which reduced the three uh, Islatravir arms to a two-drug regimen of Islatravir plus Duraverine alone, removing the 3TC component, and then the fourth arm continuing with the uh, background uh, compound of Duraverine, 3TC, and Tenofovir. And then part three, if individuals continued to tolerate or were suppressed at week 60 through 84, were rolled over to a maintenance arm of Islatravir 0.75 milligrams plus Duraverine or their uh, underlying control arm and continued in follow-up through week 44. The key findings related to safety were that there were no discontinuations for safety events after week 48 and only one serious adverse drug reaction occurred in part three. The efficacy data for the 96-week time point was reported at the Glasgow meeting in 2020. And I'll just highlight that here, showing you that for the 0.25 and 0.75 milligram Islatravir dose, there was an 86 to 90% proportion of individuals who were suppressed to less than 50 copies. The combined arms, similar suppression rates and similar to the control arm in all situations. The only exception was the high dose Islatravir arm did not appear to perform as well. The week 144 efficacy data were presented at the EACS, the European AIDS Conference, this uh, just this past few weeks, and also demonstrate similar findings out to week 144 with a 75 to 80% suppression, viral suppression rate to less than 50 copies for the majority of people in the study, and only seven patients experienced protocol-defined virologic failure by that time point. However, all they, although they were discontinued from the trial, their confirmatory HIV RNA levels were still less than 80 copies. So they were above 50, but less than 80. There were no instances of clinically significant confirmed viremia, and therefore resistance testing could not be done in these seven virologic failures. The safety data at week 144 are highlighted on this slide, and the most common drug-related adverse events were nausea, diarrhea, headache, and abnormal dreams, that presumably due to the deraverine component. There was a lower rate, actually, of drug-related adverse events in the two-drug combination of Islatravir and deraverine arms than in the three-drug combination control arm. All discontinuations due to an adverse event occurred before the week 48 time point, and there were no deaths or serious drug-related AEs. Hislatravir is also being developed for PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis, and data from the IAS this summer reported the week 24 data from a phase 2A randomized double-blind multicenter placebo-controlled trial with this compound. 
This study population included individuals who were not HIV infected, otherwise healthy between the ages of 18 and 65, and at low risk for HIV acquisition. Patients were randomized in the blinded portion of the study to one of two different doses of Islatrovir, in this case given orally every six months, and compared with a placebo. The primary endpoints in this study were safety and tolerability and pharmacokinetics, both uh, overall pharmacokinetics of the triphosphate form and pharmacokinetics in peripheral, peripheral blood mononuclear cells and in tissue. And if you look at the PK data in all portions of the study at four weeks after the first dose, four weeks after the last dose, and eight weeks after the last dose, is latrovir concentrations at both at both uh, treatment arms were above the PK threshold for activity and above the target thresholds. The drug was very well tolerated in this study and the phase three PrEP uh, trial is uh, beginning at 600 milligrams dose of Islatrovir given monthly. So Islatrovir is continuing in ongoing clinical trials, phase three studies in treatment naive, phase three studies in heavily treatment experienced individuals, in people with HIV who are virally suppressed, who are willing to switch from other regimens, and in phase two studies in children and adolescents. And these are just the uh, clinicaltrials.gov designators if you wanna look up the designs of these studies. The next compound I'm gonna highlight here is lenacapavir or GS6207 being developed by Gilead. This is a novel first-in-class capsid inhibitor. We've talked about this compound at IAS USA symposiums over the last year, but just to highlight a few additional points, it's active against a broad range of HIV-1 isolates, including those resistant to current, currently available classes of ARVs. Its action is felt to be occurring through modulation of stability and or transport of the capsid complexes and thus inhibition of multiple processes necessary for viral replication. It's active at picomolar levels or concentrations and is more potent than current antiretroviral drugs. And it too is being developed in both an oral and a parenteral or sub-Q formulation. Um, just some resistance highlights presented at CROI this year suggest that the ac activity of this drug is robust against all HIV-1 subtypes. In vitro resistance appears to arise at six amino acids at the lenacapsivir capsid binding site, and I've listed these here. Most resistance mutations, with the exception of the Q67H mutation, correlate with low replication capacity, so it inhibits the replicative ability of the organism, even in the presence of resistance mutations. Pre-existing lenacapavir mutations have not been found in testing of more than 1,500 HIV-1 clinical isolates, so that's good news. But when lenacapavir resistance does occur, the uh, HIV-1 isolates appear to retain susceptibility to HIV protease inhibitors, and so this class of drugs may be useful to rescue a lenacapavir-resistant uh, isolate. Lenacapavir is also 20 times more active against HIV-2 than HIV-1, although this is not particularly pertinent for treating our patients here in the U.S. 
There were data presented at CROI 2020 looking at the 10-day antiviral activity in people living with HIV and in an oral dosing uh, study in healthy volunteers. Both of these were dose ranging. The one in uh, people living with HIV was given uh, subcutaneously and the one in healthy volunteers orally. And as you can see, there is a dose response relationship in both of these studies with an HIV RNA decline ranging from 1.4 to 2.3 log with the subcutaneous dose. And the most common adverse event was an injection site reaction. There were some uh, laboratory abnormalities that included asymptomatic elevations of CPK and amylase. And the single dose oral dosing up to 1800 milligrams was also safe and well tolerated and showed a similar dose response relationship with viral suppression. This led to the uh, onset of a phase 2A study with lenacapavir called the Capella study. And this one is in heavily ART experienced people. Eligibility for entry was an HIV RNA level that was detectable at greater than 400 copies and resistance to at least two agents from three of the four main ARB classes and less than at least two fully active agents from these four main ARB classes. So there was a second screening HIV RNA done, and then patients were randomized based on that second screening assay. If it, they had lower viral loads that were less than 0.5 log, uh, a decline of less than 0.5 log from their original screening assay, so still detectable at greater than 400 copies, the patients were then randomized to what was effectively functional monotherapy with oral lenacapavir plus their failing background regimen or placebo plus their failing background regimen. Those individuals who had lower viral loads or less than 400 copies at the time of their second screening level did not undergo randomization, but were went directly to oral lenacapavir with optimization of their background therapy. These three groups were then followed for 14 days and then rolled over to maintenance therapy with subcutaneous lenacapavir given every six months for a year plus optimization of background therapy or oral lenacapavir for an additional 14 day lead in in the placebo group and then subcutaneous lenacapavir every six months and then continued follow up for this uh, non randomized arm. The primary endpoint achieved in the analysis, which was uh, at least a five log decline by 14 days, occurred in 90% of those receiving lenacapavir versus 17% in those in placebo, and it resulted in almost a two log reduction in viremia in the first 14 days. These patients were then continued on for a week 16 randomized cohort follow-up. The baseline characteristics are displayed here. And the only point I wanna make about these, they were relatively well balanced across the three arms of the study, but you can see that these patients had high level drug resistance, had been HIV infected for a long period of time and had experienced treatment with uh, greater than nine prior antiretroviral drugs. So heavily treatment experienced. So looking at the efficacy at week 26 in this randomized cohort, you can see that 
and 81% respectively had HIV RNA suppressed to less than 200 and less than 50 copies by week 26. And this did depend on what fully active agents were available in optimized background therapy. In the non-randomized component that had greater than two drugs in optimized background, you can see 81 um, percent were suppressed in the randomized cohort. If there was at least one drug in optimized background that was fully active, 86% were fully suppressed. And then less suppression in those who did not have any active drugs to optimize their background therapy. Overall, there was a rise in CD4 cell count of uh, greater than 81 cells for most individuals and no further de decrease in low levels of CD4 counts. When looking at the resistance data from this study, all four patients that had treatment emergent lenacapavir resistance remained on lenacapavir. Three of these patients resuppressed their HIV RNA at a later visit, and only one had a change in optimized background therapy. And these are the emergent resistance mutations that were observed. One patient that had no fully active companion drugs never fully suppressed their HIV RNA, but did have a 1.7 log decline. No patients developed additional resistance to optimized background drugs. So this uh, compound is continuing in clinical trials. The safety data were similar to the early phase one data with the primary adverse events being diarrhea, nausea, headache, and a host of minor constitutional complaints. And again, uh, one patient or a few patients with elevated asymptomatic um, creatinine levels and uh, fasting hyperglycemia. Overall, the most uh, significant adverse events were the injection site reactions. You can see them described here with their cumulative incidence of 56% having at least one injection site reaction, but most of these were grade one, only two were grade three, there were no grade four, and all 36 patients in the randomized component of the cohort went on to their second lenacapavir injection. So the conclusion for heavily drug-resistant patients was that lenacapavir combined with optimized background therapy was effective and safe out to week 26 with a, a 81% rate of viral suppression to undetectable levels and an 81 cell increase in CD4 cell count with a well-tolerated ad ad adverse event profile, none of which led to discontinuation of drug. And this is now in ongoing clinical trials. So lenacapavir is also being tested in people with HIV who are treatment naive and have detectable HIV RNA and a CD4 count of greater than 200. This too, you have to give it to, to Gilead for creating some of the most complex study designs here, but in an open-label phase 2A study design, dividing these patients into four different groups, there was an induction phase for group one and group two of lenacapavir given subcutaneously Q6 months in combination with FTC and TAF. And then at the end of that week 28 endpoint, if those individuals had 
less than 50 copies at both week 16 and 22, they were then switched to a two drug maintenance regimen with half of these switched to a TAF plus lenacapavir maintenance regimen and the others to Bictegravir plus lenacapavir maintenance regimen and then continued on treatment. There was also a group three that was originally randomized to oral lenacapavir plus FTC and TAF and group four to a control arm of Bictegravir FTC and TAF. Um, these are the distributions of participants at baseline, and the primary outcome was proportion uh, detect uh, less than 50 copies at week 54. And I'll just highlight the week 28 virologic outcomes for you here recently presented at the IAS conference this summer. And you can see that using the FDA snapshot intent to treat, all four arms had uh, high numbers, high proportion of individuals who were fully suppressed to less than 50 copies. There was one participant in the lenacapavir sub-Q switched to two-drug Bictegravir arm with lenacapavir that had emergent resistance mutations at week 10. These were those mutations. They resulted in a 20-fold change in lenacapavir activity and plasma concentrations for lenacapavir uh, were consistently maintained in the target range. Adverse events seen in this study, including injection site reactions are displayed here. Lenacapavir was well tolerated. There were no serious or grade four adverse events. The most common adverse events were headache and nausea in about 11%. And interestingly, the subcutaneous arms had higher rates of GI adverse events than the oral lenacapavir arm. Injection site reactions, as I pointed out earlier, occurred in about 39%. 83% of these were grade one and generally resolved rapidly. The, this drug is continuing in uh, clinical trials for both treatment experienced and treatment naive individuals and lenacapavir is now also being tested in a randomized clinical trial for pre-exposure prophylaxis. The next compound I want to discuss is the next generation maturation inhibitor being developed by GlaxoSmithKline. It's got a long number here, and I'm just going to refer to it as GSK254. This drug prevents the proteolytic cleavage of specific portions of the GAG protein, which prevents processing at the GAG pole polyprotein level in late stages of HIV replication. You've hear, heard us talk previously about the earlier maturation inhibitor, Biviramat, but pre-existing mutations at that cleavage site led to termination of development of that compound and the emergence of this next generation compound. And GSK254 is now being tested in a phase 2A randomized clinical trial that I'll go through with you here. This too, relatively complicated study design. Treatment naive people with HIV were, be, were randomized to part one of the trial in two different doses of 254, a high dose and a low dose, and then compared with placebo. This was an effective monotherapy component at day 10. They were switched to a combination antiretroviral therapy. And then at a planned interim analysis, the data for these part one patients was analyzed. At that point, it was detected that resistance mutations occurred in the uh, groups receiving 254 
in the 10-day monotherapy component, and therefore the follow-on part two of the study reduced that 10-day monotherapy period to a seven-day monotherapy period and randomized an additional group of treatment-naive individuals to receive three different doses of GSK254, 140, 80, and 40 milligrams respectively compared with placebo, and then at day eight were switched to combination therapy. And these are the baseline characteristics of the patients who are in these studies at all of the dose levels, relatively similar across all of the treatment arms, mostly male and mostly white, as often is the case with these new drugs, and mostly similar levels of baseline viral RNA. Looking at the antiviral activity in part one, you can see that the 10 milligram dose and the placebo arm had roughly similar uh, levels of suppression, hence no longer looking at the 10 milligram dose, but the 200 milligram dose had a nearly two log viral load suppression at day 10. And in part two, with uh, the reduction to only seven days in the monotherapy uh, component of part two, all three of the GSK254 doses in a dose response uh, pattern reduced viral loads to one and a half to two logs while compared with placebo, no change. When looking at the resistance profile for this maturation inhibitor, the resistance mutations detected in that first portion with a 10-day monotherapy component occurred in four of the six patients at the 200 milligram once daily level. And this resulted in full conversion and phenotypic resistance in only one of these four patients, however. There was no de resistance detected in the 10 milligram per day group, but as you know, that had no antiviral activity and that's why no resistance was seen. A protocol amendment that reduced it to a seven-day monotherapy in part two can then demonstrated substantial um, viral load reductions in that seven-day monotherapy period. And then after uh, initiation or after discontinuation of the drug, um, loss of sensitivity occurred in those individuals who had that resistance mutation. So in conclusion, in ART naive persons with HIV, this novel HIV-1 next-generation maturation inhibitor demonstrated a clear dose response activity. Viral loads were decreased to one and a half to two logs in doses ranging from uh, 140 to 200 milligrams daily dose. It was well tolerated with no adverse events that required drug discontinuation. And um, there were no further mutations occurring in individuals who were in part two of the study, suggesting that this compound will go on to further development in combination with other antiretrovirals. The last group of compounds I'm going to highlight today, uh, you've heard a lot about these in many numerous uh, IASA USA symposia and meetings previous to this, are the broadly neutralizing antibodies. These are in development both for PrEP and for treatment and for um, vaccine prevention. So broadly neutralizing antibodies, an extremely important class of compounds aimed or targeting HIV-1. There are many different kinds of broadly neutralizing antibody, and this slide, courtesy of Pablo Tebas, illustrates where these act against the, viral, against the virus. 
CD4 binding site at V1, V2 binding site, V3 or the glycan patch site, or the GP120, GP41 interface, or at other sites. So multiple different types of broadly neutralizing antibodies in development. Each of these have varying levels of antiviral activity against HIV and are in varying stages of development. I'm going to highlight just a couple of these approaches that are in clinical trials currently. The, these three are studies that are being done by the AIDS Clinical Trials Group Network. The first of these is a single arm trial proof of concept looking at the combination of the BRC07 broadly neutralizing antibody and combining it with long-acting cabotegravir as maintenance antiretroviral therapy. The second trial is a single-arm trial combining two broadly neutralizing antibodies in an effort to prevent relapse of viremia after discontinuation of oral antiretroviral therapy, so more of a, a cure approach. And the last trial is the first in human phase one clinical trial of a tri-specific monoclonal antibody acting at three different targeted sites. And this is to establish safety, PK, and preliminary antiviral activity. We hope to have results from each of these trials in the next year, looking at the activity of this approach. There's also an ongoing phase one study with a Gilead monoclonal broadly neutralizing antibody in people who are virologically suppressed. So I'll just summarize here by indicating that the pipeline is robust for development of investigational ARBs that have unique mechanisms of action, improved activity compared with many of the first line drugs and regimens. Each of these is currently also being developed as a long acting injectable formulation and is continuing to demonstrate the promise of these long acting injectable drug formulations and their potential for changing the landscape of treatment with antiretroviral drugs, potentially giving us fewer drugs, fewer pills, less drug resistance and possibly lower cost, although that remains to be established. There are a number of trials ongoing with alternative strategies using these compounds as well as cabotegravir as another long-acting injectable drug now approved for use in combinations with these agents and in combinations and populations that may struggle with adherence. And we hope that these trials will provide insights into novel future use of these long-acting injectable drugs. And I'll stop here and thank you for your attention. So we have uh, the option for any questions and answers to be placed in the Q&A box. And I will, OK, now we have our host on. <laughs> I was just going to take over here and uh, go with the Q&A. But I'll turn it over to you, Monica. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for your great talk. So we do have some really good questions coming in um, to the Q&A. And one question for you, um, Connie, is what was the reasoning for using Zlatrovir with Dorabrine? 
as opposed to other ARVs. Usually, that's <laughs> uh, well, you're you're asking me now to get into the climb into the heads of the pharmaceutical companies that put these things together, and. Uh, I'm, I don't have a good answer for that. I think Duravarine is a very active NNRTI. I think they were trying to avoid um, looking at integrase inhibitor class drugs uh, as a direct comparison or incorporated with Aslatravir as the, uh, there was already with the Aslatravir studies an integrase inhibitor comparative arm. So they wanted to look at something that was a companion drug that was not an integrase inhibitor. And then, of course, when you get into PIs with boosting, there are drug-drug uh, interactions and uh, issues like that that you want to try and avoid. So um, I think also Duravarine, um, they were kind of mirroring, mirroring the experience with the longer-acting NNRTIs like Rilpivirine has done with cabotegravir. So I'm only, these are only my suppositions. I'm not privy to the rationale that was developed by the companies. If there are I mean, other people really who know that. As simple as Merck makes both of them. <laughs> well, I was going to say that, but I didn't want to sound too partisan there, but um, that may be the only explanation. But I think you're right. There's, there's good reasons to combine them. Um, other questions that have come in is, do you think that maturation inhibitors, this is a really interesting question, would work only in those with detectable viral loads? Because you get to that point of the viruses um, off. You know, that's a very good question. It's only been tested in people with detectable viral loads. And as far as I'm aware, there's not an, an intention to do a uh, you know, a switch trial like we've done with many of these other new compounds and people who are fully suppressed. But, um, you know, we, we also know that people who are fully suppressed may also still have low level viremia that we're just not detecting. So I would expect that you would continue to see an activity even in virally suppressed patients. They certainly um, once they're virally suppressed in the monotherapy arms of the phase one trials, when put on combination therapy, there was still some activity. So um, I would expect us to still have activity. Okay, thank you. And then um, one question is um, from Dr. Nash is, do you have any comments on the phase one, two trials of the CRISPR-Cas9 treatment? for potential cure? I know that you're talking about investigational treatments, but any comments? I think it's a, they're very attractive approaches. And obviously um, the CRISPR-Cas9 uh, approach physiologically and pathogen pathogenetically is a very attractive one to be able to um, alter what's happening with the virus directly. Um, Aside from having promise in clinical trials, I, I don't have any experience in the conduct of clinical trials with those agents as of yet. They're in very limited stages of, of development. So hopefully we'll be able to talk about those compounds and the effects as we get to uh, next year's conferences. Great, and then another really Good question. Um, you talked about a number of different investigational agents. Can you comment in general on the barrier to resistance um, of these new compounds? You know, if we think about Bitegravir, 
dolotegravir and boosted PIs of having the highest genetic barrier resistance. Any comments on Islatravir on, and the others that you? Comment? Yeah, we don't have a lot of resistance data on Islatravir yet. Um, there was, as you saw from the data that I presented um, from the studies that are being done with that drug, we didn't see emergence of resistance with Islatravir in those early stage studies. With lenacapavir, it does appear to have a lower barrier to resistance, as you saw. Some of those patients who were switched over to a two-drug regimen had emergence of uh, resistance mutations that conferred um, decreased activity against the drug. <coughs> and we also saw, <coughs> excuse me, pretty rapid emergence of resistance <coughs> with the maturation inhibitors. So, I think the question is appropriate. They appear to have a lower barrier to resistance, at least as we've seen from the data thus far. I think we'll have to look at that question as we see phase three trial results emerge, because that's gonna be a big question about how useful these agents are going to be in the future. Uh, and, and then another question um, that's come up is, um, and, and I think um, this is two drug companies would, were talking, but has a clinical trial of Islatravir and Lenacapavir. <laughs> as far as I'm aware, no. Um, I don't know if anyone else knows about that, but. Um, I think they did just announce, um, I know, I, I think they did talk. So this is, this would be, you know, Merck making Islatravir and, and Gilead making Lenacapavir and it just literally announced a couple of days ago that they're going to combine them and and try a trial of um, once weekly therapy with these two agents. Um, so let's see what once weekly therapy does for our patients. Um, okay, this is an interesting question, which is, do you think that the M184V would decrease the efficacy of aslatravir. Um, uh, Dr. Folko says that there's some data that she's seen. I haven't seen that, but I don't know if you've if you've seen about M184V affecting the N NRTTI. <laughs> I have not seen data to suggest that there's a decrease in efficacy of aslatravir, but that again, as you see from the phase one and phase two trials that I showed you. Um, most of the patients in those trials were suppressed sufficiently that emergence of resistance mutations weren't seen with the um, background NRTIs. So um, I think that's a question, again, that remains to be seen when we see data from the phase three clinical trials. <clears throat> um, and we do have some time for a few more. Um, uh, um, so yeah, Dr. Fogel said it was reported in, a, in an article. Yeah, I haven't seen that. So that's really interesting about that. Um, so yeah, we'll have to look. Um, I, that is actually all the questions that I see in the Q&A, unless anyone has any further uh, comments or questions that they want to make. Okay, great. Thank you so much for your presentation. That was amazing. And I think it's incredibly exciting time in HIV medicine um, to be at the, at the verge of all of these um, new medications. So thank you again.
And thank you to our audience for raising a couple of good points to educate us as well. So thank you. Thank you.